According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again this evening in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we've been looking at verses 11 and 12, and I think we're ready to move on to verses 13 and following. This is also Wednesday evening, the night that we like to do our questions and answer time for the first 10 minutes, so we'll, uh, we'll have that as well. Before we do anything, though, we need to take a moment for silent prayer, confess any sin that needs to be dealt with, especially uh, traffic confessions that you have to make with uh, driving down here in the Austin traffic. Uh, make sure you're in fellowship and uh, humble to receive the word implanted, shall we pray? Most gracious Holy Father, we do come before you so thankful. Thankful for your grace. If it wasn't for your grace, none of us would be here, Father. We don't have any right to be here. Who are we? Um, but in ourselves, Father, we have no standing. But in Christ, we stand before you boldly. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So tonight is yours. Teach us from your truth. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take some questions and answers, and I promised Lee she could have our first question tonight, and I will do my best to hear her. No? Okay. Well, then, we'll go to the second question, and that'll be this young man up here in the front. Okay, so this is actually a question that I was asked years and years ago, and I have I I kind of had an answer for it and I figured it out sort of, but I wanted to see what what you had to say about this. Um, so it was uh, it was high school, and I was talking to people about the gospel, and it was at that time that I realized I was called to be a pastor. And this person comes up to me and they ask me this question, like, okay, well, um, what if there? This is this is the question that I'm sure you maybe you've gotten a couple times. This is the question of these people grew up in a cave and they've never been exposed to the Bible or God, and so their their question I guess it's a question of God's sovereignty or a question of if they died would they go to heaven type of deal, right? So I guess uh, I have an expansion on that question. So we know where Christianity is spread as far as what the Bible tells us. Mm-hmm. And evidence in places like Ethiopia, because there's an Ethiopian Bible and places like that. But what? A, so I guess I have questions about, and there's also stories of Leif Erikson starting a church over here in America, potentially, right? So there's cool stories like that. Uh, what would be an appropriate response to something like that, especially if they want to ha- ask questions about Native Americans before European settlers came or something like that? Right, Parts right. of the world that remain in darkness, uh, practicing pagan stuff. Um, how do you? Is there any speculation on how the gospel gets to those people? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation, and, and um, it comes down to God is absolutely fair, and so no one will ever um, stand at the great white throne and say, "Well, it's not my fault. You didn't send an evangelist. I never heard the gospel." Uh, things like things like that, and so everybody's accountable for the light that they've been given, for the revelation they've been given, including natural revelation. So no matter where they are, you know, there's the there's the witness and testimony of natural revelation, Romans chapter 1, the power of God is clearly seen through what has been made. And then beyond that, you know, those, I believe, that are positive at God, at God consciousness then have the opportunity at gospel hearing. 
uh, with respect to that. So even prior to humans reaching the Western Hemisphere, of course, humans have been here since, I, I, I believe humans have been in the Western Hemisphere since the Tower of Babel. And so, you know, there is, uh, there is that. There's also angelic uh, uh, possibility of, of angels coming and, and things of that nature for, for giving the gospel and so forth. Um, anyway, those, those are the kind of mind games that the skeptics want to play and whatever. And just, I don't, I used to entertain such things. And, and, then, and so lately I just start throwing it back at them and say, well, were you raised in a cave? You know, you're not in a cave, you're not in a cave now. I'm not in a cave, you know. So let's just talk between you and me here about about the gospel. So, right. But the the point I guess of that would be is that God is sovereign and God is good. Mm-hmm. So there is no way that He would not give every person an opportunity to have uh, some some form of saving doctrine for them, no matter what situation they're in. Right. And and with His perfect foreknowledge too, He knows who would accept the gospel, who would reject the gospel. Uh, so the sovereign choice of where He allows them to be born. And the, and the uh, parents, he, he allows them to be born to, you know, in every generation, and uh, issues like that. So um, it, it may be that, um, that I mean, especially in, in pagan lands where there's a, a huge amount of infant mortality anyway, uh, that, that those that die before the age of accountability, um, you know, that, that could be a provision as well right. for, for somebody that conceivably in a hypothetical universe would have accepted the gospel if only he would have he would have heard it uh, in that kind of a thing. Right. I have one more question. Okay. I don't want Not a hypothetical, to come back and No, okay. actually, instead of being hypothetical, I just want to know, what's the Shekinah glory? That's, the, phys- that's the, the visible manifestation of the glory of God that traveled with Israel in the wilderness, that resided in the Holy of Holies, that hovered uh, above the, uh, the mercy seat and below the, the cherubim wings. That's, and, and Shekinah is, a, is an Aramaic term that became a rabbinical tradition related to, to that glory. Oh, okay, yeah, because there's a Bible story where they built the temple, they finished building the temple, and there's a lot of animal sacrificing going on. Apparently it was the most that had ever been done before, and then a cloud like descended upon the, the temple mm-hmm. or something, and it was like an incredible sight, apparently. Mm-hmm. And that glory departed uh, before the temple was destroyed, and Ezekiel uh, got to witness that glory departing. And it, and it never returned. Uh, it was a greater glory that returned when, when a baby was born in a manger and, and Jesus himself uh, stood in that temple. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Good questions. All right. And then we're going to cross the aisle because we are bipartisan. And we like to keep our microphone runner um, hopping from one side of the room to the other. Can you pull up, pull up Romans 2? I think it's 14 through 16. It seemed like that to me was also a, a, a good answer for the question of, you know, what if someone's never heard? The God, you know, the it's often thought of that way. So yeah, Romans two oh, and Gentiles applied the law. The problem is though, the law is not salvific. The, the Jews didn't get saved by keeping the law. And so this, this contrast with the Gentiles who do not have the law, they do instinctively the things of the law, so they have a God consciousness, they have a conscience. This is all with, uh, on, a, on an experiential basis for daily living, uh, experiential sanctification. It's not positional. Uh, if, if you try to view this as a way of, of a salvation for the, uh, for the Gentiles apart from the law, 
I think you just created a bigger problem for yourself because then you have to show me how the Jews got saved by keeping the law. And that's not, that's not a salvific issue. So I appreciate that. And yes, I believe that was the uh, conscience has been the standard ever since the fall for the Gentile people groups that were not given a law. But they do have their, their God-given conscience of right and wrong and, and so forth. But if nothing else, that's specifically for the, for the Jew, like verse 16, mm-hmm. you know, according to his gospel. God's going to judge, judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Yes. And, and keep in mind, Judgment Day is not a determination of who's good enough to get into heaven or who is bad enough to go to hell. Judgment Day is actually the evaluation of their fruit. And, uh, and the, the determination of whether they're going to heaven or hell, is, is that's a different issue. Yeah, judging the secrets of men, um, judging the, the secrets of their heart. Yeah, that's not whether they're saved or not. That's the fruit they produce. And, uh, and judging their works, their deeds. So, all right. Excellent question on that. Got time for maybe one more if it's uh, a quick one, an easy one. Or even not an easy one. Or we'll spend extra time in Ephesians if there's nothing else. Anything on YouTube? No. Okay. All right. Well, then, thank you for running the microphone. Appreciate that. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 again. And I really want to highlight a few things here. Something dawned on me when I got to verse 13 that I didn't mention when we were in the earlier paragraph because it didn't dawn on me earlier. Um, but the the now statement that we have, because it's such an emphatic now, it's a noonie. Not just a noon, but a noonie. And so, oh, okay. And that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, and it is the corollary to the then or the once upon a time, or the formerly that we had in verse 11. And that formerly, now contrast is, uh, you know, something we've been picking up on and commenting on. Uh, it's a contrast of what used to be versus what is now. And, and you, have those, um, you have those terms. You have the tata for the, uh, for the that was then, or the pata, excuse me, for the that was then. And then you have the nuni for the now in Christ. And as many times that I've been contrasting uh, verses 1 through 10 with verses uh, 11 through 22, uh, because they're both presenting a then and now contrast, I'm actually wrong, and I'll freely admit it, uh, you know, technically wrong, um, as, as we want to highlight it. Yes, um, it is a then and now contrast, but it doesn't use those words then and now. So it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And, but then there's not a now statement. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. So there is a formerly there. There's the same pata there as a formerly that is parallel with a pata that we have um, in verse 11. So the pata is a, is a parallel but the now, the nuni, 
And now that we're getting to the now in verse 13, I got to thinking, now, where was that contrast again? Where was that nuni that we had in, uh, in verses 1 through 10? We didn't. There was not one. Okay? And so, it's just a contrast talking to individual believers in a, in a room of individual believers and the fact that we all got saved at different times, at different places, in different years and, and whatnot. Um, so, you were dead. And you and you formally walk that way, but and rather than a but now statement, we have a but God statement. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And that's not now. That's just at whatever moment it was that you got saved. So whatever moment I got saved, whatever moment you got saved, and so forth, we all have different times. That, uh, that God made us alive. Made us alive and raised us up and seated us. All of that happened at a split second on that, that day, that moment when you placed your faith in Christ for eternal life. And so, to be really technical about it here, verses 1 through 10 is not a then versus now contrast. It's a contrast of unbeliever versus believer, and that was a... That's, uh, not a technically not a now event because it happened whenever it happened whenever these folks got saved. However, eleven through twenty-two is a then and now contrast, and it is a then and now speaking not salvifically but speaking dispensationally. And so the then and now in this contrast is talking about the estates. The, the Gentile estate, the Jewish estate, the church estate, which is really why I'm, I'm happy to have been creating these little diagrams, and I'm going to keep using these diagrams. I'll try to tweak them and improve them um, as, as we go. But the formerly and now contrast, that was then, this is now contrast, is what we're dealing with, and we're not dealing with individuals anymore. We're dealing with spheres, realms, estates. We're dealing with... Uh, in the entire realm of, of Gentile humanity, that was then, but this is now. And there is a new creation that didn't exist back then. So the formerly and now contrast of verse 11 and verse 13, I've got to make that a little smaller so I can get them on the same. There we go. The formerly and the now, that's really my fault too because I stretched out verse 12 as best as I could. Um, the formerly and the now contrast is, is really, dispensationally, we can say, that was before the church age. But now that the church age has begun, we have a new position in Christ. And it is glorious. Okay? And I hope we're clear on this. And it's fun that not only are we getting this presently in the Ephesians series, but we're also teaching a dispensational class on Sunday afternoons. And so we're going chapter by chapter through Charles Ryrie and his book on dispensationalism. And I think that these, uh, these principles are, are huge. They're actually critical for us to, to process. I would just stress that the whole address here is to you collectively, the Gentiles in the flesh. You collectively, the Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the ones called circumcision. And so what we're looking at here is, I need to put a title on this graphic, 
This, this graphic can be titled Old Testament Humanity. Okay? Old Testament Humanity, where every human being in between Adam and Eve and the church age, every human being fell into one of those circles. Either you were Jewish, as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or anything that wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. Are we clear on that? Jews are Jews, and anything that's not a Jew could be a Roman, a Greek, a Babylonian, an Egyptian, could be, you know, a Ukrainian, an American, whatever. As long as it's not a Jew, it's a Gentile. And so on that basis, it's kind of wrong to have equal-sized circles because it really is 500 to 1 uh, presently for the, the global population of Gentiles versus the, uh, the global population of Jews. We'll let that go for now. I, I like equal-sized circles for this diagram. So before the church age, and we're talking about from Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve all the way to the day of Pentecost of 33 A.D., right? We're talking over 5,000 years of human history. This is what humanity looked like. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. And then some of them would get saved. And guess what? They were still Jews and Gentiles. They just became believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Okay, So a subset of all the Jews in the world were believing Jews. And we can discuss whether you think this diagram is appropriate or not. Um, you, think the, you think this oval is too small compared to the larger circle? Okay, I, I, I don't. I think narrow is the gate and, and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Uh, I, I think Scripture makes it clear that, that the larger segment of humanity is unbelief and, and they're going to die and go to hell. And then it's a smaller segment of humanity that, that receives eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But be that as it may, uh, believing Gentiles are still Gentiles. Okay? So this is how humanity could be diagrammed going all the way back, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And this would be the appropriate diagram. Well, technically, in this first dispensation, there were no Jews. Okay, so before Abraham, before Abraham, all you had was a Gentile circle. Okay, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the calling out of Israel, once you have Jews in the world, then you have both circles. But today, what do we have? Today, what we have now are three circles. Okay, and I want you to notice something very specific. We have three circles. We still have our Gentile and Jew circle. But notice, we no longer have the internal uh, subset of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. That's not a thing anymore. Because the believing Jews and believing Gentiles now, where are they? They're now in this third circle. This is a new creation. This is a new realm. This is a new sphere of positional truth. And that's what this whole chapter is about, and the next chapter. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, we're going to get into the mystery of the church. We're going to talk about neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. We're going to be speaking in positional terms relating to these positions, these spheres, these realms of existence. And so all of humanity, and by the way, 1 Corinthians 10, 32, this, uh, at the other table, 
If that is considered Old Testament humanity, then what do you call this? New Testament humanity, right? Or church age humanity. The present here and now. So, Jews and Gentiles are all unbelievers, and when they get saved, they become church. They become royal family of God. They become bride of Christ. The body, the bride, the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so this is the the diagram for New Testament humanity. And, biblically speaking, we can prove this because of 1 Corinthians 10.12, or 10.32. Where we're told, give no offense. Don't throw a stumbling block out there. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Three divisions of humanity, when there used to only be two. Okay, this is uh, this is part of the the uh, the whole framework of dispensationalism. It's part of the essence of what uh, Ryrie calls the sine qua non of dispensationalism, the clear distinction between Israel and the church, and it is it is vital, absolutely vital. And I don't know how you get around it with First uh, Corinthians ten thirty two. You got Jews or Greeks or Church of God. That's that's your comprehensive uh, diagram of humanity right there. That's New Testament humanity. All right. So this is how it used to be. So remember, remember, and and this text was given uh, just twenty three years after the church began that there are people in that church with living memory of what it was like before the church age. Okay? I think that's significant. And, and maybe largely that's lost to us since we're, we are 21st century uh, Christians, and, and it's been a long time. And nobody today remembers before the church age. Okay? That's, that's pretty obvious. So, remember formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and that's the collective you, all y'all, Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the called circumcision. Remember that at that time, back before there was a church age, what were you? Back before there was a church age, you were separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless. Okay? You were separate from Christ because this sphere of Gentiles what Messiah do they have? None. The only, the only Christ, the only Messiah, was the Hebrew Messiah. And so every Gentile nation was Christless, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, positionally. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Every covenant was given to Israel. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New. Mosaic, if you want to include that. I usually don't classify that as a covenant of promise. It's a covenant of condemnation. <laughs> you can't measure up. You're going to fail. And, uh, yeah. And having no hope. What hope do the Gentile nations have? Israel's the nation with a hope. Israel's the nation with a future kingdom that will never end. And without God in the world. Because you know what? The Lord God uh, that created the heavens and the earth is the Lord God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Israel. And the gods of the Gentiles, what are they? 
demons, fallen angels, posers, imposters, worthless idols. And that's where we uh, kind of concluded things on Sunday. The um, Without God in the world, the text there in verse 12 says, in other words, atheists, right? Theos, and put an alpha in front of it, so you're godless. Ento cosmo, in the world. Godless in the world. Because the gods of the nations are useless idols scheduled to perish. And we went through that list of verses there, uh, seeing the, the uselessness of the idols, even mocking them. Mocking how, how uh, dumb it is to worship something that's man-made. To how, you know, anything that's man-made is, uh, is, is, is not a god. If you have to carry it from place to place because it can't move by itself, it can't talk, it can't speak, it can't see, it can't hear. It's just the work of man's hands. Right? Anyway, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus. So the now is a contrast between the dispensation of Israel and the dispensation of the church. Now, the dispensation of the church has a whole new reality. There is a whole new positional truth sphere. And again, it's in Christ Jesus. This is the language we've seen uh, again and again and again, uh, more than a dozen times now. Because I think there was a dozen times just in chapter 1 by itself. And all of the in Christ, in whom, in Him, all of those phrases, in Christ Jesus, that's the positional truth reality of being a born-again believer in the church age. Meaning that you're saved by grace through faith, and God the Holy Spirit has baptized you into personal union with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now there is a new position. That old position was far off. This was a far off position. This was a near position, but not as near as the church. Okay? Israel was a near position. And if you think about it, how near were they? Well, God dwelt in their midst. The Shekinah glory was there. And so he was in the neighborhood. But how many people could actually walk in there and, and stand in the presence of that Shekinah glory? Only one guy one day a year. And he went in there trembling because if, if he made any mistakes, he was going to drop dead while he was in there. And, and so that's the nearness that they had. One guy, one day a year. Uh, other than that, you had a, a, a priesthood that could be in the outer holy place. And it could be in the courtyard. Other than that, you had some Levites. They could be almost as close as the priests. So the, the priest could be almost as close as the high priest. The Levites could be almost as close as the, as the priests. And then you have a, you know 12 tribes that aren't Levites. And they're almost as close as the Levites, but they can't go into the holy place. Okay? So, yes, they're near, but even within that nearness, there's some, some near is, is nearer than others. Right? Like animal farms. Some animals are more equal than others. Some 
Jewish nearness. I mean, seriously, Naphtali and Asher and Issachar. They were so far north, they might as well... Well, no. They were still near. Okay? They were certainly nearer than the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Greeks or Romans. Okay? Anyway, so we're going to see a nearness. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. And there's a lot more details that we're going to see here on this. And it's not turning us into Jews. It's actually changing the Gentile position and changing the Jewish position to create a new position. One new man. Thus establishing peace. So that's what we've got to deal with here starting tonight. So, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, the emphatic nuni death, but now. The emphatic nuni death, but now. So we're contrasting the previous Kairos at that Kairos opportune time. Now we have this Kairos opportune time. But now. The contrast is dispensational. Formerly signifies the dispensation of Israel. Now in Christ Jesus signifies the dispensation of the church. Any questions on that? <laughs> right? Formerly signifies the dispensation of Israel. Now in Christ, or now in Christ Jesus, signifies the dispensation of the church. And we have such an explicit statement that's being laid out here. This is the kind of thing that really needs to go into, uh, oh, I don't know, something like the Journal of Dispensational Theology, <laughs> or something like that. Spell this out. Show how explicit this is. And so there was then, in that estate, and now there's now, in the new estate, the position that we have in Christ, and the contrast there. The uncircumcised, separated, alienated, estranged, hopeless, godless estate of the Gentiles. Alright. They were not problems to be remedied, but features to be contrasted. They were not problems to be remedied, but features to be contrasted. I think that's another interpretive issue that many of the commentaries, uh, they just they swing and they miss. Because they're looking at these verses in 11 through 22 almost as if it's just a restatement of verses 1 through 10. Almost as if it's just a contrast of being an unbeliever and now you're a believer. And that's not the case at all. Because this estate of Gentile humanity, this estate of Gentile humanity applies whether they're saved or not. Gentile unbelievers, Gentile believers, were still, I mean, pick your favorite Gentile, Job, okay? He's my favorite. Who's your favorite? You have a favorite Gentile unbeliever of the Old Testament? Just pick one, Okay. And your favorite Gentile believer from the Old Testament was still with, separated from Christ, alienated, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the covenants of, of uh, promise, without hope and without God in the world. Because their Gentile estate, that was the sphere they were in. And it's not... It's not uh, 
they aren't problems to be remedied any more than any more than the label uncircumcised is not is insulting. It's not it's not insulting. It is what it is. They are uncircumcised because it's the Jews who were given the covenants of promise. It's the Jews that were selected to be the chosen people. And keep in mind, this position here for, for the Jews, the advantage that they have, they have the covenants, they have the promises, they have the law, they have the fathers, they have the Shekinah glory, they have, the, they have a whole portfolio of blessings for their estate, whether or not they are saved or not. Okay? Judas Iscariot was Jewish. He was in this estate in, in the Old Testament before the day of Pentecost. He had every advantage that is, uh, that's listed in, in Romans 9 or in Ephesians 2. The giving of the covenants, the giving of the law, the, the fathers, the Shekinah glory. I mean, just all, all the positional blessings of a Jewish person. But he wasn't saved. He died and went to hell. So, in part, it might behoove us to maybe rethink what we understand with when we talk about positional truth. Maybe we're so trapped by us and where we are that we think positional truth equals being saved. Well, in the church age, it does. Our positional truth in Christ means we are born again, we are saved, because that's the only way to be in Christ. But that wasn't Gentile positional truth, and that wasn't Jewish positional truth before the church age. Those positional truth blessings were uh, not related to salvation status. And um, now that I think about it, that was a point I made there. Prior to the creation of the church, Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms, identified by physical birth and entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. So the, the, position, the Old Testament positional truth realities for Jew and Gentile had nothing to do with individual Jews or individual Gentiles who happen to receive eternal life by grace through faith. I hope this is helpful. It's also helpful to, to consider that the seed of Abraham covenant promises and, and expectations are not identical to the seed of the woman expectations. Okay, that's salvific. See that the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's going to solve human sin. It's going to be the remedy for the lost estate in Adam to, uh, to, to receive eternal life. The seed of the woman promises are completely salvific. Seed of Abraham, different issues. Okay? So I want us to be clear on, on, on these concepts. The Jews were the chosen people. They had every Jewish advantage regardless of whether they were even saved. Gentile nations had every disadvantage, even when individuals among them happened to get saved. And so they were separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless, whether they were saved or not. And that's what we're looking at here. Now, 
the uncircumcised, separated, alienated, and strange, hopeless, godless estate of the Gentiles were not problems to be remedied, but features to be contrasted. And so remember the issue in 1 through 10 is you were dead, but God made you alive. I think we can, we can think of that as being dead is a problem. Okay? And being made alive is a remedy. That if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, to make you alive in Christ, that's a, that's a pretty good remedy, right? That, I mean, that's the only remedy. That's, the, that's, the, uh, that's a problem to be remedied. And God did that when He saved us. Different dynamic now in verses 11 through 22. Because this, is, this text is not promising now to give any Gentile group a Messiah or to give any Gentile group Israeli citizenship or to give any Gentile group a, uh, a party standing with, uh, with a covenant of promise or to give any Gentile group an eternal destiny like Israel has for their, for their eternal hope for their future hope. Or, to give any Gentile group a, uh, a national god. Right? That doesn't happen. That's not what this text addresses. In fact, this text doesn't offer any solutions or remedies to those problems because they're not problems. They're not problems. They're just statements of the Gentile position before Christ, before the church age. They are not problems to be remedied, but they are features to be contrasted. These features meant that prior to the church, the Gentile estate was far off. That was their estate. Their estate was far off, the Jewish estate was near, but both groups had to be preached to. Because there's something new that's happening. There is a new estate that's being created. And let, let's just highlight a few things. I'm going to read down here through... I don't know. I'll, I'll read down here through at least verse 18, maybe more. So, but now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That's not peace between sinful man and a holy God it's peace between the uncircumcised that are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised okay there's an enmity there between Jew and Gentile and it wasn't the Gentiles that put it there for he himself is our peace that's the the, the mediator peacemaker between Jew and Gentile who made both into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's not the barrier in the in the theme booklet. That's the you know the, that's the barrier of sinful man and a holy God. This barrier is the barrier between the um, the the near Jews and the far Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Enmity. Okay, we're going to deal with that. What is that? You know, we're told that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Okay? Um, but that's not what this text is dealing with. The enmity here is the Jew-Gentile enmity. And who has an enmity? 
Is that Gentile enmity against the Jews, hostile to the Jews? Well, who's doing the name-calling in this passage? Who is, who, is the, uh, who is bringing about this enmity? We'll deal with that. We're told specifically the enmity is the law of commandments in ordinances. Okay, the Gentiles didn't put that there. So that he himself might make the two into one new man. That means the two. Gentiles and Jews. Jesus is working in both circles to create a new third circle. He's not taking the Gentiles and turning them into Jews. That's important. Thus establishing peace. And by reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. So not only did he resolve the enmity, he provided the peace that ended the enmity, but he even, that enmity is so ended, it's called uh, murdered. No, not murdered. Put to death. Okay? Execute. It's not murder. It, but it is put to death. Put to death the enmity. Maybe we'll even dust off an old King James word like mortified or something like that. Okay? Put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached. Now this is critical. He came and he preached peace himself. Peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. See, he's preaching to both groups. Both. Both, both, both. We're going to have... Uh, there's three There's three of them in this paragraph. Both, both, both. In verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 18. Okay? Yes. Both, both, both. We'll have some fun with that. Reconciling the both, preaching to both, peace to you who are near, peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near. And and those who thought they were near, they were, they were near. I mean, that was, that was nearer than anybody else ever got. But not as near as they're going to get, and not as near as we are. For uh, through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So, both into one. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Not because he remedied it. Not because he, he uh, gave you Jewish citizenship or made you part of the nation. You are no longer strangers and aliens because you're no longer in this Gentile sphere. You're now in this church sphere. He didn't remedy that sphere at all. That sphere is still there for unbelieving Gentiles. That sphere is still there. Like this sphere is still here for unbelieving Jews. But we now have this new sphere called the church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So that means Jew and Gentile are now together, fellow citizens and are of God's household. Ooh. That's pretty cool. Okay. What does this mean? To be of God's household? What is that about? 
understand the we understand house and household. We understand, uh, especially in a, in, a, in a king's house, in the ruling house. That's why we call this the royal family of God. We're of God's household. Right? It's not the house of David. The ruling household uh, for, for Israel was the house of David in the tribe of Judah. We didn't become uh, in the house of David in the, in the line, tribe of Judah and the nation of Israel. No, our citizenship now is God's household. Heavenly citizens. Just think about that. The royal family of God. You know, be like, uh, um, what are some of the... We have uh, the house of Windsor, right? Which used to be called the house of Hanover. Except that was too German during World War I and World War II. So let's just... Rename it. It's the same house. It's the same people. The same genealogy and the same descendants, right? But they just had, they couldn't use that German name or Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Boy, you get even more German than that, right? No, Windsor. That sounds very British. Let's go with House of Windsor. Well, we're the house of God the Father and God the Son. Okay, the royal family of God, and. Uh, there's our blessings. All right. Uh, fellow citizens with the saints of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Remember, the house of David was built on David, the son of Jesse, right? That's a different house. Different foundation, different basis, different destiny, different everything. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, look at that, we're a building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, Israel had a temple. We are a temple. What a contrast. Okay, that's in uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer. I can't claim credit for that. Um, I try to cite my sources so I don't, I'm not trying out for Harvard or anything. I'm not a plagiarist. If, um, Lewis Berry Schaefer said it. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. In whom also you are being built together into a dwelling. Here's here's the royal palace. Remember, David was really guilty because he had a beautiful palace and and he wanted to build a temple for God. And that the king's palace and, and the Lord's temple were two different places, two different buildings. Solomon had a palace and he also built the temple. Different buildings. We're both. The royal family of God, the body of Christ, is a temple and is a dwelling. Being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is a temple in the Lord. This is a dwelling in the Spirit. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got some exegetical studies coming up to, to try to break these things down. So, relax. You're not going to get it all tonight. <laughs> but, I'm excited. I'm excited because this is so dispensationally wonderful. And it clears up uh, a lot of issues with, I think, that the problematic issues that Israelology offers up. Uh, particularly, I'm going to tweak some things that, that I'm, going to, I'm going to have some flat-out disagreements with with uh, Arnold Fruchtebaum and, uh, and with other group builders of Israel, for example. We, we love what they're doing, but they've got a flawed ecclesiology and they have a flawed Israelology that um, 
we're going to we'll, we'll just fix it, okay? And we'll make sure that we have the the appropriate understanding of it here. So let's talk about being makran. The Greek makran, M-A-K-R-A-N. This is uh, an adverb or an adjective that means far off and shouldn't be a shocker to us. But notice how it's used in Ephesians here, verse 13, verse 17, verse 18. It's kind of a point of emphasis there, used three times, just like the both is used three times. We have these triplets as, uh, as we have them there. But far off, in verse 13 and verse 17 and verse 18. But we start with Matthew 8.30. <laughs> There was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Okay, great. It's just a description of where they were. And you would think about it. Um, this is a fun chapter. I like the, the story here, the, the demon possessed. And, and um, remember, swine were unclean. It wasn't the Jews keeping these pigs. Okay, And there were Gentiles, there were Samaritans, there were Greeks, there were other groups there. Uh, they didn't always coexist very peacefully. In, uh, in different circumstances. Remember when the prodigal son ran away, where did he end up feeding the pigs? So, anyway, I, I do like the fact that you have the term here, and you have it used in verse 30, and that distance with a swine is used in the context where we're contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews are near, the Gentiles are far off. And that's where the Gentile estate was, far off. Mark 12:34. This is interesting. Um, hmm, let me back up here. One of the scribes came and heard them. Jesus had so many interactions with the scribes, and some of them were friendly. No, very few of them were friendly. Most of them were pretty hostile. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, "What commandment is the foremost of all?" And this is kind of, you know, yeah, this is what the Sadducees bring up this stupid hypothetical, almost like growing up in a cave and never hearing the gospel. You know, this widow that had seven husbands and they all kept dying and now she's going to go to heaven and whose, whose wife is she going to be? Anyway, while all of that's going on, this other guy says, hey, I'm going to butt in here. I've got, I've got a question. I want to get my question answered. So he came and he heard them arguing, and he recognized that he'd answered them well. He said, ooh, I like what Jesus said. He said, you know nothing. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. So he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? So Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And then he goes even beyond the question. He says, there's a second one like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you've truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. I love it when the scribe is telling Jesus he's correct. <laughs> like, seriously? Okay. All right. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy's got an understanding of, of Hosea 6. This guy's got an understanding of a lot of, of solid doctrine from the Old Testament. I, I, I like this guy. 
Okay? Uh, it's interesting. And then Jesus says, he saw that he had answered intelligently. Isn't that fun? When you encounter a believer and you can talk doctrine, and you, you just find out, man, I don't even know who you are, but I, I've enjoyed this conversation. Because clearly, you love the Lord, you've been in the Scriptures, and, and this is good, let's talk. He saw that he answered intelligently, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Ah, what's that about? You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And so that one guy, he must have been thrilled, and then all the others that were listening, I think were horrified, because no one would venture to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And this is our adverb here, our makron, that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's 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 a curious thing. And of course, um, there's other issues that we can delve into on this. I think the um, one of the one of the interesting things we talk about these estates, we talk about how it's irrelevant. Whether you're saved or not, you're in that Jewish estate. But here's where that becomes relevant. If it was irrelevant all throughout the Old Testament history, it does become very relevant, relevant in the, uh, the, uh, the promised kingdom. It becomes very relevant when the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It becomes very relevant when uh, this entire um, promise is fixing to get fulfilled. And at that point then, you better believe there's going to be a distinction between the believing and the unbelieving. That's why John the Baptist came and said his primary imperative was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's why the the, the parables uh, related to the imminency of the kingdom are all stressing the necessity for being born again. And so, uh, this is where that distinction, which, as, as this is, uh, not only is it a diagram of the Old Testament, this is also a diagram of the tribulation. Okay, because after the rapture of the church and the coming tribulation, once again, humanity will be back into that Jew-Gentile enmity, that Jew-Gentile dividing wall. And, once again, believing Jews, the 144,000 and other Jews that get saved during the tribulation, that's who's going to enter the millennial kingdom. And the unbelieving Jews, they will not enter the millennial kingdom. Even should they somehow survive the tribulation, they will be executed by Jesus Christ, in, uh, described in Ezekiel chapter 20. It's called the wilderness judgment of Israel. And he regathers them from the four corners of the earth, because he promised he would do that, but then he purges the rebels from among them, and no unbelieving Jew will then get to, I call it, walking up that holy highway into Jerusalem. Because only believers will leave that wilderness judgment physically alive to enter into the millennial kingdom. Likewise with the Gentiles. It's called the sheep and goat judgment. At the, at the end of the tribulation, unbelieving Gentiles will also be executed and sent to hell. Only the believing Gentiles, see those are the goats, those are the sheep. Only the believing Gentiles who survive the tribulation will then have a physical life that enters into the millennial kingdom. 
Millennium starts with only believers. So that's a good contrast as well. All right, so he, uh, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which must have been good news for this man. He would have been thrilled to hear this related to his preparedness and his readiness to enter into the kingdom. And I expect, too, that he, you know, he knew the commandments. He loved the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he was doing real well. All right. Then we have Luke 7, 6. And a uh, Roman centurion. He goes to Capernaum and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And that's extraordinary. There's a Gentile, but he has a, a sacrificial love for his, uh, for his slave. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Think about the authority this centurion has. He could just dispatch some Jewish leaders, Jewish elders. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. What a perspective they have. You know, they're, they're Jewish religious leaders, and they're totally wrapped up in worthiness. And the worthiness they think they have, and then based on that, the worthiness they can assign to even Gentiles. Worthy. What a stupid attitude. Don't you dare go to the Lord in prayer and tell Him what you're worthy of when you're asking for things or you're praying. It's not about our worthiness, okay? For He loves our nation and it is He who built us our synagogue. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of nice. He forked up some, some money. I guess we kind of owe him now, right? He built our synagogue. Well, I better, better go do a miracle. All right. Thank God that we don't work this way. Are you kidding me? How insane is that? All right. So Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. They said he was worthy. He knows he's not. And what, what, a, what a nice contrast there, that Gentile centurion, that Roman versus these uh, Jewish religious leaders. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I am um, not oxios, not worthy. All right, or sufficient. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Amazing faith this guy understands. You know, I thought that other guy had a great understanding. This guy's got a great understanding. Anyway, there's the not far off expression. Uh, Luke 15:20, the prodigal son. And, of course, he's in a far off land. And then he's rehearsing his speech. And he's returning to, uh, to rehearse his speech to the father. And uh, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. So we've got some pretty vivid descriptions throughout the New Testament related to far off and not far off. I don't think there's any fuzziness in Ephesians 2 when it comes to the Gentiles being far off, the Jews being near, but not as near as they need to be, not as near as they're going to be, and certainly not as near as we are presently in the church age. So these contrasts are fun to look at. I'm almost out of time here. Well, uh, John 21.8 
other disciples came in the little boat. They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging a net full of fish. This is where Jesus is fixing their breakfast. All right, and we got more. Um, Acts 2, Acts 17, Acts 22. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I think we've got to spend some time on that. We've got to talk about what's happening in Acts chapter 2. What's happening is the church is being born. We have a new stewardship that is, is being entered and that is being created. Ex nihilo creation. Okay? And the two are being made into one. And notice, you, your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, we'll pick up here on Sunday. Lord willing, rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for this night. Thank you for truth. Thank you for a full day of blessings, Father. Proverbs this morning was abundant, and now this. Father, I just thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. I pray that we have clarity as we study. I pray that we uh, not only process this information, but make it real to each one of us in our witnessing, and our functioning, um, that, that we clearly understand our role as the body and bride of Jesus Christ, that our role is not to be a theocratic nation in the midst of other nations, Father. That was Israel's role. We have our role, and we, we need to start functioning on that basis. So I give you the praise and the glory, Father. Thank you for taking us to Ephesians. What a glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, keep your armor on, walk in the light. We will see you again, either here, there, or in the air.